Welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. We're here for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Zach Shahan, CEO of Clean Technica. And today we have Tony Siba joining us. I'm sure everyone here is familiar with Tony Siba, but just in case you're not entirely familiar with him, he's the co-founder of Rethink X, and he's also well-known for writing the book Clean Disruption of Energy and Transportation. And he has been speaking all over the world for more than a decade about disruption of energy, transportation, and uh, more recently, broader, you know, you have basically uh, five core topics that you're focused on now. So maybe give us, to start off, a little bit of an introduction on on Rethink X and these five core topics of disruption you've been focused on lately. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Zach. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure uh, to see you again. So in I've been uh, studying disruption for, like you said, a good uh, 15 years. And within Rethink X, we started analyzing or reanalyzing disruptions of energy, transportation, food, materials, information, and, and so on. And one of our conclusion was that all of these disruptions were going to happen in the 2020s, concurrently, at once. So we set out to study what does that mean for humanity? You know, are there cases in human history over the last 10,000 years where we've seen disruptions of this magnitude at once? And what has that done to society, right? Uh, good and bad and, and so on. And what we found is that there are five foundational sectors of the economy, information, energy, transportation, food, and materials. And every time there was a 10X, an order of magnitude technology disruption, basically there was a massive implication for society. And every time we had several of these disruptions, essentially we would have a new societal power leader. So essentially uh, we have analyzed technology disruptions at the sector level, but when you combine them, and that's what we're seeing in the 2020s, we're seeing a combination, a convergence of disruptions in all of these sectors. And what that means is that we're gonna have breakthroughs of, for instance, and we can get into details, right? Transport disruption and EVs and energy and information and so on. So both the breakthrough of the new and the collapse of the old are happening at the same time in the 2020s. So we have massive uh, uncertainty in the 2020s. And then in the 2030s, if history is any indication, we have two routes. We either break through to what we call the age of freedom, or we collapse like societies have done every single time throughout history. And so that's what we're studying at Rethink X. Yeah, and I'm curious to hear more about the deep history of that and, and all that. And I don't know if it's better to talk about in the intro or, or talking about specific segments, but I'll, I'll say one of my favorite one of my favorite things that I've covered in the past 13 years or so that, we've, that I've been doing this there was, uh, I think it was Desmond Desmond Wheatley, I think is his name, uh, founder of of Envision Solar, which has now got a different name, but they pr- provide solar powered EV charging systems. 
he just emphasized that, you know, basically we learned to burn stuff for energy, for heat and, and energy and cooking. And now we're learning to create energy without burning stuff. So, so it's like, you know, if you look back, you know, deeply, it's like we, we had the phase of before we could burn stuff. Then we burn stuff for energy. And now we're in, transitioning into this phase of not burning stuff for energy. And when you look at it in that scale, it's like, it, it, I think it's just, it's hard to, to fathom how big of a change that is that we're making in the energy sector and how it's not just changing from one technology to another every few decades. It's about completely stopping burning stuff for the first time since we discovered fire, which is pretty wild. So maybe you want to talk, start with the energy topic, yeah? Yeah, we can. And you need to add to that uh, human labor, right? And, and also animal labor uh, that, you know, we use for energy for, you know, essentially ever, for 10,000 years. With all the, you know, dramatic implications, um, mostly negative, of, of using human labor for energy. But so what we're seeing and what we have seen for decades is that is the cost curve of solar, of batteries, and wind have relentlessly gone down. You know, cost curves are something that, you know, in general, folks don't look at when making uh, projections out 10, 20 years. But, you know, cost curves are, you know, a little bit like gravity. They will happen, right? If you drop something, it will drop, right? The question is how quickly. So solar, for instance, has come down, as you know, from about $100 per watt in 1970 to, you know, 20 cents now. It's a relentless 22% cost curve. Lithium-ion batteries uh, have come down, as you know, uh, since they were invented. And if, if you keep that cost curve, if, if you keep projecting that, so as you know, in, in, in 2014, when I published Clean Disruption, I did a, a lithium-ion batteries where coming down at about 16% per year or so. And so I did the projection out to 2030. And essentially the, the realization was that by now, by the end of 2021, early 2022, they would be at about $130 per kilowatt hours. And that sounded insane at the time, but cost curves again are like gravity, they will happen. So when you combine solar and wind and batteries, the disruption of, trans, of, of energy is inevitable. We're already there, right? I mean, it, it, we're at the point that, that it is inevitable. And a lot of folks say that it is surprising how you know, the cost of solar PV has dropped over the last, you know, since 2010, but it should not be. I mean, in 2010, you know, I said that solar PV would drop by about 80 to 90% over the next decade, and it did. And the majority of voice, voices were calling you crazy for it, I think. And and basically, that's I want to bring up two things and I'll let you address both. Yeah. So I like really that comparison to gravity because it's also, you know, the cost can be dropping without any impact, without any noticeable impact for a while. But it's just when they hit the ground, when they hit a certain crossover or disruptive, dis disruption point, then all of a sudden people see the impact of all that dropping. So with solar and batteries, both, you know, there are decades of, of, of those dropping costs where people were like, oh, we've been working on this for decades and nothing's really happened. So 
It's right. not really something to pay attention to. And you sort of get lulled to sleep in the fact that, yeah, but sooner or later, they're going to hit the disruption point or they're going to hit the That's ground. Right. Yeah. So That's one, right. one of those is that. And the other thing is just what I said, you know, for, for many years, you know, you, you've been projecting this, forecasting this, and people have, you know, the sensible voices in the room, the, the adults in the room have been saying, you know, you're sort of crazy. This is not really, this is not how it works. You have to look at the details of everything and it's all going to be stopped. It's all going to slow down. The cost curve is, you know, looks like this now, but it won't in five years. So I guess both of those points, you know, you can address them how you see fit. But... No, I, I, absolutely. You know, I mean, the, the, the cost curves are like gravity and the, the solar PV, for instance, uh, already by 2020, and that's what I call the rupture point, the point at which, um, you know, the cost of the new essentially uh, falls under the cost of the old, right? And, and at that point, things happen for purely economic reasons. And all my analysis is for purely economic reasons. And so, you know, solar, uh, as you know, has been dropping by about 11, 12% per year for decades consistently. So we're now at that point where solar is the cheapest source of energy, period, on the planet in history without any subsidies. And so, uh, you know, uh, batteries are also down incredibly and in, 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 in wind and so on. So at this point, and, and as you know, 90% of projects, generation projects in the US, right, waiting for interconnection grid are either solar or wind. So the market is paying attention at some point, I mean, for purely economic reasons. Then, um, then after, I mean, you get that, which has already happened where, you know, all new projects basically are renewables, but then you get the point where also solar and solar and batteries get competitive with existing operational plants that are maybe 10 or 15 years old. And it's another level of disruption, right? Yes. I mean, uh, you know, today solar plus four hours of storage, which is called, called nearly firm generation, is not just cheaper than conventional generation. It's cheaper than the marginal cost of conventional generation. I mean, even if of the operating cost. So even if you get a natural gas power plant for free or, you know, a coal power plant for free, the cost of operating that plant is higher than the total costs of solar plus four hours of storage. So in fact, it makes exactly no sense to invest in anything except solar and batteries. The only exception, right, to, to what I just said is if you can't build, you know, an electric power system that consists only of solar, wind, and batteries. So in that case, then, which is a case that, uh, you know, a lot of conventional uh, mainstream analysts and, and certainly the utility industry makes the case that it's going to be expensive, that it could not possibly be done and so on and so forth. But so we looked at whether a system, an electric power system composed only of 100% solar, wind and battery uh, was possible. And if so, how much it was going to be. And lo and behold, the, 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 the answer was, yes, it is possible. And not just that, but if you take into account the cost curve of solar, wind, and batteries over the next 10 years, and you build it out over the next 10 years, it's the cheapest possible energy system on the planet, period. The cost of a 100% of building this 100% solar, wind, and battery system is lower than the cost of maintaining the existing conventional generation system. 
So it, it, you know, basically all the pushback that was emotional and so on makes no sense, no economic sense at this point. Yeah. And I mean, we've both heard for years, people saying, oh, but this is not possible. This is not possible. Another, a colleague of your, you, you've, I know you've taught at Stanford and another famous Stanford professor, Mark Z. Jacobson has done a lot of work on why hundred percent renewables is possible and better Delucci as well. And in, you know, we have this interesting case in South Australia right now, a state in Australia, South Australia has been leading in new renewables, you know, not just renewable, not renewables, including hydrogen, uh, sorry, hydropower, which is, you know, several countries run 100% on renewables or 99% based with a lot of that yes. from hydropower. But South Australia is leading with new renewables and battery storage and just keeps proving people wrong that it can't be done. It can't be done cheaply. It can't be done uh, in a stable way. And they keep, you know, right. sort of you know, putting these voices to sleep, but, you know, you're really, you're about the future, you know, we, I'm sure we could have a lot of fun talking about the present, what's happening in the energy markets. There's a lot more I wanted to say, but, you know, you're about the future and, and more broadly. So maybe we can go into the next topic, which is food disruption, which, you know, we have not written nearly as much about, Uh, you've got done a lot of research on, and, you know, maybe people who understand the, the energy story, story, but not necessarily the food story will get a bit out of this. Yeah. So food, the food disruption is is huge. And a lot of people have not heard about it because probably food today is where solar or EVs were five or seven years ago. You know, at the point where there was a lot of pushback and it's crazy to think that the disruption is gonna happen and so on and so forth. But let let me tell you what, what it looks like. I mean, the main technology that is going to disrupt food is called precision fermentation. And uh, precision fermentation is, uh, you know, a convergence, like all convergence of technologies is is, uh, basically they happen because of all of these cost curves that converge and make something possible at a certain price. So if you go back to 1980, for instance, you know, a company called Eli Lilly created insulin using this technology called precision fermentation. So to explain it, let's talk about beer which is a uh, you know, fun topic. And we, we've used fermentation for beer for 9,000 years. And essentially you have a yeast, uh, you feed it sugar or grains or whatever, and out comes beer. With precision fermentation, the yeast is genetically modified or the bacterium to produce essentially any organic molecule that you want, protein. So in the case of insulin, they modified a yeast to produce insulin. But of course, at the time, it was really expensive, 40 years ago. But you can produce collagen, for instance. You can produce the proteins in milk, casein and whey, using precision fermentation. And in fact, several companies are already doing that. Now, why is it happening now? And why is precision fermentation so disruptive? So let me talk about milk, for instance. Milk is, the milk bottle is 3.3% protein. And that is the economic value of milk, 3.3%. The rest is essentially sugar and water and 90% water and so on. Now, the industry just needs to disrupt that 3.3% of the milk bottle to disrupt the whole dairy industry. Now, how hard is that? So a third of milk of dairy industry revenues come from dry, basically selling it to folks like protein bar, protein shake, and so on and so forth, right? Who add the protein 
to their products. And you know, essentially the question is when is precision fermentation protein going to fall below the cost, the rupture point of animal proteins? And the answer is this, PF precision fermentation proteins used to be about a million dollars per kilo of protein in the year 2000. Is that a lot? That sounds in, like a lot. I'm just kidding. That sounds <laughs> like crazy. a lot, right? Yeah, and that went down 10,000 times in the following 20 years, 10,000 times, right? To about $100 in 2019. So it's been going down at about 100x per decade. Now but it's going to stop now, right? It's going to stop. Uh, of course, it's going to stop, right? It <laughs> These curves not, always hit a wall. It, it could not possibly, you know, go faster, right? And in fact, the cost curve for, uh, you know, genetics is even accelerating. But even if it doesn't accelerate, even if, you know, it, it, it goes down by another, say, you know, 50x or whatever, instead of 100x over the next 10 years, by 2030, the cost of precision fermentation proteins is going to be somewhere between $1 and $2. Now, what does this mean? Animal proteins, you know, uh, casein, whey, uh, the, the milk proteins, for instance, trade at about $10 per kilo, right? So when PF proteins are about $1, essentially that industry disappears. And that's going to happen by 2030. And the rupture point, right, where we are in solar today in energy is gonna is gonna come so the point at which it hits ten dollars essentially is going to be 2024 2025 so by that time all of these protein bar and protein shake companies are going to have to switch to pf proteins for purely economic reasons right so a third of you know dairy industry revenues disappear around 2025 another third is cheese and yogurt and so on, same thing. So two thirds of industry revenues disappear without consumer behavior change, you know, over the next seven years, they right? Even, so won't even that industry is really. gone. That industry is gone, right? Yeah. By 2030. So, you know, a lot of people think about Beyond Burger, Impossible Burger. How, yes. does the, how, are, how are they related to what you're talking about? Yeah, so Impossible Burger, for instance, the, the magic ingredient in the Impossible Burger, the ingredient that makes it taste and smell and feel like, you know, cow meat, is called heme, from hemoglobin. And heme is a precision fermentation protein. So it's produced, uh, it's fermented, they genetically modify yeast and it produces heme, right? And, and, and so this tastes and feels and smells like cow and now they're producing uh, you know, pork and, and so on and so forth, right? So that, that goes to show that you don't need to you know, uh, modify the whole beef. You don't have to have a one-to-one -one in, in for the whole beef. 2%, heme is only 2% of the impossible burger. And that is already disrupting, you know, animal meats, right? And the same technology that is used to produce, you know, basically impossible uh, cow burger equivalent can be used to produce pork and, and sushi and, and so on and so forth, right? So- um, I get all of that. So 
so how is the you know you track the industry how is the industry res- responding to this at this stage is it sort of similar to to how the tradition the the energy and and uh, transportation industries were we're sort of like ah oh, that's that's not happening or is it a bit more open-minded actually this is happening a lot more quickly so you know with all of these cost curves that that i predicted over the last 15 years folks said nah that's not not gonna happen it's all happening right and so once i published you know the 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 rethinking food and agriculture. I mean, the second domestication of plants and animals, it's that huge. A lot of conventional uh, uh, food manufacturers are going into precision fermentation. So Tyson, for instance, now calls itself a protein company. They're not a, you know, animal protein company. They're a protein company. ADM is getting into the space. Nestle is getting into the space. So a lot of the heavy hitters are getting into the space. They're not, they're not waiting. I mean, they, they can see the writing on the wall. The cost curves for precision fermentation are so fast that if you're not there today, you're out over the next couple of years. You're just gonna be out. So a lot of companies get it. They get it, yeah, they're seeing. And, and I mean, I think sort of seeing what's happened in the other industries maybe helps, helps people who are open-minded to, to look at what's happening in their own industry sooner. Well, you know, it's, it's I mean, we co-hosted in case anyone doesn't know, we co-hosted a conference revolution in Amsterdam for EV Box uh, three years ago, and I remember, you know, a lot of a lot of people claiming, you know, that you sort of have you're too general, too pie in the sky about you know how these trends happen, and you know, and even hearing people say that, you know, some people you know, there's sort of, there were sort of two camps. There's sort of two camps: the camp that says, yeah, this is how it's going to go, and the camp that Oh, this is too gen- general. What can you say about like how can you explain? Oh, two things. Again, two things again. How can you explain how it is that these cost curves are so relentless, so that you can predict them without looking at too much of the details and trying to map out exactly the road, the path that they take? Why is that? How 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 can you see that? And have you ever found a case where? there was that kind of thing happening and it did hit a wall because I have, I've never really seen that, but yeah. I wonder if you have found such cases and if there's any reason why. Yeah. So we've known about cost curves for a good hundred years, right? So the, 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 the you know, the, the idea is not new and, and they're usually driven by, by um, scale. So, you know, in the case of solar PV, every time the market doubles, essentially the cost of PV goes down by about 22 or 24%, right? And that's been relentless since 1970. So it is dependent on volume. It is dependent on investments and learning and, 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 and so on and so forth, right? But if you have basically a, a good notion that volumes are going to be increasing, that investments are going to be increasing and so on, it's just a matter of you know, are they going to go down by 8% next year or 12%, right? But, but it is going to be relentless. It's not going to be zero and, and it's likely not going to be 30, you know, unless there is hyper growth, which, which is possible, right? But if you make sensible uh, assumptions about growth based on what we have seen so far, so in solar PV, for instance, we know that solar had doubled volume every two years since at least 1994, so it, you know, it's not a stretch to think that when solar was the cheapest source of energy, 
that it's going to keep doubling, right? Every couple of years. And that's how you make those kind of predictions. But whether you, you know, basically uh, say that you know, lithium ion batteries, for instance, is it going to go down 9% or 30%? Well, you know, let, let's look at the history, right? And, and let's look at, you know, what the volumes are going to be uh, going forward. And lithium ion batteries do not only depend on EVs. I mean, in the past, they didn't. Now they do, mm-hmm. right? So even without EVs, you could confidently make a cost curve for lithium-ion batteries based on electronics, based on computers, right? And, and so on and so forth. But yeah, they are relentless. And, and so your question is valid. I mean, have some technologies hit a wall? And the answer is yes. I mean, uh, you know, you have the internal combustion engine automobile. It, uh, it just yeah. hit a, yeah. it, it hit a wall and it hit a wall a hundred years ago, right? And, and you know, the cost curve of engines and the cost curve of, of, of tires and so on and so forth had been falling relentlessly for decades before, you know, essentially the, 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 the gasoline car disrupted the horse in the early 1900s. And, and so, yes, they hit a wall at some point. And since then, it's been incremental improvement in that product, right? But, you know, so... And I guess yeah. it meant like it hit a wall before disruption or something. And it, and it, it's, I mean, it sounds like it just comes down to, is there a fundamental supply barrier that can't be solved, you know, that would stop the, stop the progress. But I mean, that, I mean, basically, you know, we, we focus a lot on solar and batteries. So, you know, you have yes. silicon, you have lithium, you have other nickel that are, you don't really have a limitation, but I'm just wondering if that, yeah, but we don't need to get, we, we can actually no, jump no. to transportation because that is a, it's a fascinating yeah. one in a, a lot of regards, but, you know, I think one of the really fascinating things about it is that in the past two years, we have seen that really steep growth, it's really steep adoption in a sort of living laboratory of, of Europe, uh, also China, the US to some extent, but it's really Europe that has seen this, you know, across all these different countries with all different policies it's just sort of has been driven in part because automakers had to try. They had to try to sell or else they were going to face big fines. So they couldn't really hold back anymore by saying, oh, people don't want these. Oh, we can't produce enough. They had to produce enough to meet certain targets to not be facing big fines. But now that we've seen that, we've seen this explosive growth for the past two years that's been, you know, even for all of us who predicted it, it's like exhilarating. It's like, wow, it's happening. It's there. It's Boom, 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 month after month, quarter after quarter, country after country. So right. I don't know. So talk a little bit more about what you forecasted. Yeah. You can even, you know, feel free to, you know, uh, you know, go back five to 10 years and, and yes. uh, pull, pull up your nose at some people who said, oh, this guy's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, as, as far back as 2010, and certainly in, in, in my book, Clean Disruption in, in 2014, I predicted that by 2020, the market would offer unsubsidized EVs with a 200 mile range, which I thought at the time was the minimum that you needed to go commercial and big, the market would offer unsubsidized EVs with 200 mile range that were cheaper than the average of the median new car in America by 2020. And as you know, basically, you know, that prediction was called insane, not gonna happen. And in fact, it did happen. I mean, by, by 2020, you know, the, the, the median new car in America is about $38,000, $39,000. We had several cars, you know, below that $35,000, $36,000. And worldwide, we have many, I mean, it's especially in China, 
under $20,000 EVs with 200 mile range equivalent. And that was the rupture point, uh, you know, and I predicted that, you know, in, tw in, in, in 2010. And a lot of folks say that, that it was unpredictable. It was unknown. Nobody could possibly have known that. Well, I did, right? And not only that, I predicted year by year how it would go. And it did exactly that. And so 2020 was the rupture point, as I predicted, for EVs. And, and essentially what, what that means is that after that, the new breaks through. At that point, it tips and then it accelerates. And what we saw in 2021, again, just like I predicted, thank you very much, is that EVs globally were 10% of new car sales globally. And you know, basically that's the point at which markets tip and actually it accelerates, again, for purely economic reasons. And, and yes, go on. Oh, so I was, I was just, you know, I'm curious, you know, thinking about that. Well, a couple of things. One, you know, 2010, this was, I think we started, I started writing about them in 2012. And, you know, basically there wasn't really much out there in 2010. So you were really basing off of lithium ion battery price trends from consumer electronics, I, I assume, which is what a lot of people don't realize is that EVs became possible because of these changes, these trends in laptops yes. and phones. Yes. Is that yes, correct? I mean, you know, isn't it interesting, right? That that it is, you know, that cell phones disrupted oil, you know, and 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 that's the way I study things, right? So cell phones and 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 laptop computers and smartphones and so on drove essentially the cost curve of lithium-ion batteries for many years, and they made it possible for EVs to even happen, right? And then, of course, then EVs drove lithium, you know, ion battery, the cost curve, right? And actually it accelerated, if anything. But yeah, I mean, you, I could see that EVs were going to be at this price point because of the lithium ion battery uh, cost curve that came from the electronics industry, from the computer industry. And, you know, it's the idea that it's all connected, right? That, 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 that you know, there are no silos in, 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 in reality. Right. That's a good point. Well, well, so, you know, thinking about that, that forecast as well, it just, it keeps bringing to mind this, this, you know, famous seeing the forest for the trees. And I, you know, you must talk to a lot of people, see a lot of people critique your work who are focused so much on the trees that they don't see the forest. Is this like, how do you sort of, how do you view that kind of mindset or how do you view that kind of challenge to, to this? Like you must've developed some interesting ways of thinking about it. Yeah, so, um, you know, that, that's a great point because, I mean, you know, our industrial, you know, economy has been based on very linear assumptions and very siloed experts and so on who cannot see beyond their, you know, little deep, but, but you know, little silo, right? And things that happen outside that silo, they can't understand, they can't see and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, when I look at things, I look at reality as a complex adaptive system, which it is. I mean, you know, the world is, humans are, the economy is, industries are complex adaptive systems. Uh, there are no silos. I mean, that, that's actually not real. So I look at the connections between industries and, 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 and how cost curves, for instance, from one industry can affect the others. And, you know, more than that, how convergence of technologies can wipe out total industries, right? And the, the, these technologies may come from 
totally different countries, regions, industries, and so on, and, and basically enable a big disruption. So, you know, I, I, I you know, in my work, uh, I've realized that uh, we need complex systems thinking to solve essentially the world's major challenges. We can't solve them with linear thinking, right? With what I call the linear mirage, with the idea that the world is going to be a constant and so on. From cancer to climate, you know, we need from consciousness, uh, we need complex uh, systems thinking to even start, you know, solving those issues. So we need to get out of that linear mindset if we are to solve the world's major challenges. It's quite funny. When I was a, an undergrad 20 years ago, my thesis advisor was he he'd actually he got his PhD from Harvard and his PhD thesis at Harvard was based on how we got got so much more and more specialized, how the, the kind of over specialization in yes. our society. So it's, yes. it's funny that you bring me back to this, you know, what he would talk about 20 years ago and what he did his, his thesis at Harvard on. And, you know, how we've, how, you know, you're, you're showing how that gets broken out sometimes. And it also brings to mind this guy, you might, uh, what's his name? Elon Musk. You might've heard of him. He's, he's sort of fa famous Once in some parts of the world. Yeah. Yes. Well, anyway, the, the thing that one of the most interesting things about him that I, I heard at one point or read was that, you know, he, he was obsessively learning about all kinds of things as a kid, as a young adult. So he sort of just obsessively deeply learned about a bunch of subjects. Right. And what, what he was most effective and what he's done as a businessman is make link, make links yes. between things that other people don't see because they're focused on one topic or another, and they haven't deeply learned about enough topics to sort of make those links. And yes. I, I still think that's probably been I mean, my, my perception that might be the number one thing, along with perhaps stubbornness and risk, risk, appetite for risk, that has led him to his success is just, you know, finding those links. So it's, again, interesting that you highlight that and highlight that, that as sort of a weakness we got to break out of. Do you see what do you, what's your general perception on how society has been changing with regard to that specialization? Yeah, matter? I don't actually I mean, you know, specialization has served us well in the past. Right. I mean, I'm not I'm not. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we've studied nature down to the subatomic level, right? And that could only be done through specialization, right? And we need that. But, you know, that means that, you know, like, like you said, we, we get lost in, in the noise, right? In, in the specialization, and we fail to see the world as a complex system, which it is, right? So we need both. And, and, and more than anything, as, as we solve the world's challenges, we need more complex systems thinking. And, you know, even now back to the, to the EV disruption, right. And, you know, a lot of folks are still, still don't get that this is a convergence of, you know, uh, electric on demand and autonomous technologies, you know, back to the, to, 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 to the mention of, of Elon Musk. And I think that he understood that, you know, in the past, that this is not just about driving the cost curve of EVs. That is just one of the technologies that, that had to be, you know, pushed in terms of cost curve. But if you look at EVs, they are computers on wheels. And, and long-term, the value in EVs is going to be in software, right? And information and data and, 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 and so on and so forth. So uh, the, the other thing that a lot of folks uh, don't realize just yet is that, um, you know, this is not what I call a one-to-one -one substitution. This is what I call a phase change disruption in which 
the new system is not going to be the old system with incremental change, right? So, you know, in the 100 plus years ago, um, folks thought that the car was a faster horse. And we know, of course, that it wasn't because the car was on a per mile basis 10 times cheaper. It could go 10 times further. It could, could carry 10 could, times more load. You could live right? in your car. You can't live in a horse. This is. Uh, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the new transportation system was not just a faster transportation system. It was a totally different. And in fact, it changed everything about the world. It wasn't just about even transportation. We built cities around the car. The geopolitics of the 20th century were around oil, which basically was, you know, came about because of the car, right? Dating, mating, work, everything changed because of the car. That's a phase change disruption. So it was not a one-to-one -one substitution. Same thing is gonna happen with, you know, EVs. So, you know, those who now over the last year or two come to realize that, yeah, EVs are gonna disrupt, you know, gasoline and diesel vehicles um, are still thinking that it's gonna be a one-to-one -one substitution. But in fact, you know, think about this, um, electric vehicles can drive 500,000 miles as opposed to the ICE, you know, vehicle driving 140. So that's three times further, right? And in fact, both GM and Tesla have announced a million mile EV, which means that, you know, it's going to go 10 times further, the life cycle. Now, you know, we only drive 10, 12,000 miles every year. So do we really need a million mile vehicle? The answer is if you're an individual consumer, no. But you're, if you're a fleet, then over 10 years, right? I mean, if you, if you do business, right, which you have to do the numbers, over 10 years, you can use one EV or seven gasoline or diesel, diesel vehicles, right? So if you think about it, for fleets, EVs already make economic sense. If you think about it on a five or 10 year basis, because they go 100,000 miles per year, they would need just one EV. So what you're going to see over the next you know, few years is that fleets are going to go all electric because they have to. They have to go all electric, again, for purely economic reasons, because EVs on a per mile basis are already far cheaper than you know, uh, diesel and, and so on and so forth. And that's why you have Amazon, which bought 100,000 you know, Rivian uh, vans, right? And you have Hertz ordering 100,000 Teslas. Fleets have to go electric, and they say it's because of climate, but in fact, it's because of this green, not the other green. Yeah, so what, one of two final, you know, tough questions maybe. So when, I don't know when it got on my radar, but at some point I started hearing a lot of concern about not that there isn't supply for batteries, for battery minerals, battery mineral supply, but that it takes years to develop mines and you have to have the investment ahead of time and there's not enough people realizing you need to invest now for seven years out down the road and that basically even even with these trends there's just going to be a kind of road construction detour or you know delay caused by not enough investment in mines for minerals like nickel lithium in order to like you know achieve you know 100 percent in 2030 or 80 percent in 2030 yeah. What's yeah. your view on 2030 and what's your view on how much this might become a barrier or not to the, the, the ongoing trends of EV adoption? 
Yeah. So, you know, the past in the past pushback was that there wasn't enough lithium, period, right? And we know that that's not the case. I mean, th- there's more than enough known lithium, right, to, to, uh, to, to build a billion EVs or, or you know, something like that. So, uh, but, but your point is, 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 is well made, which is that it's not just about availability on the ground. It's, it's you know, you have to refine it. You have to turn it into, into batteries and, and so on and so forth. So now that EVs, you know, the EV market tipped and it's going to accelerate, the dynamics is actually going to flip from, you know, uh, car companies generating demand. I mean, that's where their effort was to companies fulfilling demand because demand is going to be there uh, for purely economic reasons, right? So at this point on, supply of EVs is going to be a huge thing for companies. They have to invest in you know, batteries and they have to invest in manufacturing and, and uh, of EVs and, and so on and so forth, right? Now, so yes, supply is going to be at this point a determinant factor. The, but the, 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 what a lot of folks in the industry are not still looking at is the idea that we're going to have fewer cars overall. Uh, we're not, this is not a one-to-one substitution where, you know, we're going to take the, all the billion cars on the road and we're going to flip them into EVs. That's not going to happen. Yeah, I was going to say, I meant to say, I think you've already started answering my question when you're talking yeah. about the other stuff. But, you know, and also anyone who's tried to, to estimate how many EVs can be produced in 2030 and what percentage of, of sales that will be, they know, you know, that, you know, the a huge factor is how many vehicles will be sold. And, you know, that's what you want to talk about more, I'm sure. Exactly. So, you know, uh, this, this is a phase change disruption, right? Which means that the new transportation system is not going to be the old transportation system electrified. That's not the way it's gonna happen. So one of the things I just mentioned was that, you know, an EV is gonna be able to go a million miles, meaning you're gonna need just one EV over 10 years uh, if you're a fleet, not seven internal combustion engine vehicles. So in fact, we're gonna sell fewer cars going forward, whether it's vans, cars, and so on, because EVs last a lot longer. The life cycle is a lot, you know, larger, anywhere from three to seven times. And when that happens, uh, as fleets adopt EVs, the Ubers and the Lyfts and the Amazons and DDs and so on, the cost per mile of transportation, you know, for fleets is going to go, go down by three to seven times, right? Just because of this math, just because of the, uh, you know, longer cycle, which means that a lot of us are going to have to make decisions. Do I want to spend $50,000 to buy a new car, any car, right? Or, you know, do I want to use uh, Uber or Lyft or, or whatever, which is going to be a lot less expensive. And so that's one dimension of why we're not going to have as many cars. The other one is, of course, autonomous technology. So the day autonomous level four, autonomous technology is ready and approved. You know, you add that convergence on-demand, autonomous, and electric, the cost per mile of transportation is going to go down by anywhere from 10 to 15 times relative to owning a car, right? So it's going to go down from 80 or, you know, cents or a dollar per mile to five or 10 cents per mile uh, offered by, you know, the the robot taxi, if you will. And again, at that point, 
uh, our decision is going to be, do I want to buy a $50,000 car over the next five years, or do I want to buy a subscription, $100, to Uber or Lyft or DB or whatnot? That's a no-brainer. Again, every time I've looked at history, a 10x uh, relative uh, improvement in cost and capabilities re relative to the existing system has enabled a quick disruption. So in fact, we're going to stop owning cars, right? We're going to stop owning cars for purely economic reasons. And the thing you mentioned about a phase change rather than just a, an incremental right. or you know, replacement, That's right. which is an interesting way of thinking about that helps me to think about it to be honest uh, it, it's like okay it's not that's when you see the disruptive changes that people can't see ahead of time because they're just not willing to see what's not in front of them but that's an interesting way and another factor Mar martin vinkhausen one of our writers that written written really good stuff about it, is the kind of industry osborne effect of i mean even today even if there's not enough supply you, you're gonna say well i'll wait to get my ev rather than get a an out-of-date gas car you know so by 2030 especially i mean it's just hard to imagine anyone in 2030 is not thinking well even if i have to wait six months i want this i want an ev i don't want i don't want to get a gas car because it's not going to be worth anything <laughs> so it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. It's, exactly. it's hard to see anyone making the decision no matter what the supply challenges are to buy a, a non-electric car in 10 years mm -hmm you won't be able to resell it and not just in 10 years. I mean, you know, if, yeah. if my cost curve, my 2014 cost curve for EVs, which has been on the money so far is, you know, still going by 2025, even if it were a one-to-one -one substitution, we're going to see $10,000 EVs with 200 mile range by 2025. So it's going to make no sense to buy any gasoline vehicle, right? I mean, at any price by by 2025 so and so this is it, what we i mean a lot of people think we're already seeing this in europe that people that uh, you know the ev market share is really high not just because ev sales have gone up but because non-ev sales have dropped so much and that hasn't that wasn't just uh, a blip it's, it's continued for basically the last almost two years that's the, you know these sales keep going down while EV sales rise. So overall sales are lower, but EV market share is higher than people expected. So is that, and, and I mean, it's only 2021. So, you know, 2025, what's happening in 2025? But we'll jump to the last, uh, yes. you know, quote, hard question. And is, yes. you know, can we, can we address climate change? You know, this is the fundamental question. This is, you know, the, the changes we're talking about are pretty, pretty small compared to the changes that would be forced upon us if we don't address climate change. So, what yeah. can you say? Are we, are you optimistic? Are you? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, we did the numbers and, uh, you know, essentially when you take into account these three disruptions that we've talked about and energy, transportation, and food, and, you know, the cost curve that are going to drive these disruptions. And the fact that, you know, all of these are uh, becoming cheaper than the existing system. So these three, eight technologies, right? Three disruptions, energy, transport, and food, driven by eight technologies, can help us lower emissions 90% by 2035 and 100 by 2040. Again, eight technologies that drive three disruptions can help us, for purely economic reasons, basically solve climate by 2035, certainly by 2040. So can you list those eight? What? Yes, so energy, solar, wind, and batteries, transportation, on-demand, autonomous, and electric technology, and food, precision fermentation, now and later, cellular agriculture. 
So those eight technologies, if all we do is invest in those and remove barriers to adoption in these eight technologies, essentially we can solve climate by 2035 and get money back and get money back, right? It's not gonna cost as you know, the, 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 the mainstream says, it's, it's actually, we're gonna make money in the process. And I think that's a good guidebook or plan for clean technical coverage, which is, you know, uh, good for us. We still have a lot of fun stuff to cover. I guess, you know, this has been tremendous. Just want to thank you again for spending the time. I know that you get big speaking gigs all over. You must have had a bit of a time off during COVID, uh, but also, you know, you have a lot of work. So I appreciate the time. And also, you know, you're kind of, you have a a very good humanity, a very nice, you know, you, you just come across as a very caring and, and, uh, even though bold, but, you know, I would say a bit, you know, humble and, and, and soft-spirited person. So I really appreciate that from you. I appreciate that you're the messenger for such a, a great thing uh, for so many people. And, you know, any final words on, on, uh, on any of these topics or anything we, we missed? No, it's, it's, it's my pleasure. Uh, thank, thank you for having me. It's, it's, uh, it's a pleasure doing, doing this. I mean, you know, the final word is that, you know, we have, we have a lot of evidence that leads us to believe that we can be very optimistic about the future. I mean, there's, this is not just, you know, empty optimism. This is driven by, you know, our work in, in disruption. And the evidence says that there's a lot of room for optimism if we as a society make the right choices. And, and so it's, it's, you know, I think the next 10, 15 years are going to be great. Thank you so much. Hopefully we be at a conference again together at some point soon or soonish and uh, have a lot of uh, a lot more to talk about off the record and all that to try to see what could what could be what we could dig into next time but thank you so much thank you it's my pleasure thank you cheers thank you for listening to clean tech talk join us next time to get your electric fix If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.